0: Thank you for listening to Room 9, my daddy's podcast. Hope you enjoy. If you would like to help Room 9, please visit their support page. You can listen to Room 9 on your favorite podcast listening platform. Don't forget to visit our Instagram and Facebook page. Please like it. Room 9. If you better yourself, you better the world. Hello, my Room Niners. Welcome to another episode of Room 9. In this wonderful episode, I sit down with the program director from Horizon Health Terrace House, which they have a detox program and then their 28-day program. We have an awesome discussion about his role at Horizon Health. We kind of talk about the stigma a little bit and how difficult change can really be. So you guys should absolutely enjoy this episode before we get into that, just a quick little intro that room9podcast.com is still up and running. So get on over and check it out. Fill out a contact form. Get on the support page if you want to help spread this message. We are doing lots of good stuff around here in the western New York area and hope to keep pushing that out with your help to the rest of the country and the world. And if you can't help out financially, we would love for you to share our all our stuff like our facebook page share all our social media stuff and that would be just peachy oh yeah and one more big thing we just got approved for a nice grant and that is awesome because i'm going to get to upgrade some equipment and get some advertising going and really start pushing us out there i'm very blessed and humbled that that approval came in but anyway without further ado episode 46 of room 9 with jeremy Hitt. Thank you for having me at your office here.
1: I want to say thank you, Sean, for having me do this. Uh, the podcast is a is a really great forum to get a, an important message out.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I find it. I always loved it because I always said people can be educating themselves while they're doing laundry and mm-hmm. driving, and that's why I always loved doing you know having the podcasts and doing them. I feel like it's a easy and convenient Certainly. form of education. Yeah. Yeah. So I appreciate the appreciation. That's awesome. And you are the director here at Terrace House, right? Correct. Correct. And now is that that involves the detox and the 28-day program?
1: Yeah, so what we have currently is a stabilization program, and we started that in 2016. We previously had a detox program and a 28-day inpatient program. Within those regulations, there, there were some restrictions and barriers. So uh, with residential redesign uh, that was uh, developed over several years through New York State Away SAS, uh, the Office of Alcoholism and Substance Abuse Services, and the assistance of Horizon redeveloping uh, bedded programs and how we mm-hmm. look at bedded programs, how people get into bedded programs and move from one to the next, we assisted in developing this stabilization program.
0: What were some of these restrictions that you ran into?
1: Well, we could start with 28 days. Okay. okay, <laughs> that, That's one right there. And even with detox services, there are three different levels of detox. And within those levels of care, we, we used to offer two of them here, medically supervised withdrawal services mm-hmm. and medically monitored withdrawal services. With medically supervised, the individual would get medicated for either alcohol, benzodiazepine, or opiate withdrawal. Okay. They would get a a medication taper to help them wean off those substances. And once that medication is complete and they're considered medically stable, they're done with that level of care. Luckily, we had a medically monitored program that could shift into there, and mm-hmm. individuals who might still be experiencing some lingering withdrawal symptoms or come in off the street and may or may not get sick from withdrawal could still come in and be monitored. And within that monitored withdrawal program, they, they could stay up to 21 days. Okay. So there was another limitation. And medically managed withdrawal services that are at, like at a hospital, generally they can only stay again while they're medicated.
0: So and then they have to leave once yes. it's...
1: There, there's pros and cons of that I mean they they have to make room for the next people that are coming in, in in a life-threatening condition in some cases so they they need to move people along the barrier is is that you know where to next and can they make that referral happen in in the time frame needed
0: yeah because people obviously need more time than seven days when it comes to Right. You know, recovering and in, in the substance use realm of life. But then, as you pointed out, you have other people who are could potentially die from withdrawal, especially when it comes to uh, um, the benzos and uh, alcohol withdrawals. Right. You see some uh, some deaths quite often from the withdrawal. And I actually, one of my good buddies' aunt, she quit drinking cold turkey, and her liver f- shut down on her, and she died. Like, this was about five or six years ago, I, re- I remember yeah. that happening. And my father, who's also an alcoholic, I remember my mom I had to talk with my mom like you can't just try to get him to stop drinking right because it could it could really end up bad but I mean so it's important that you get those people in too immediately correct and I I don't know I kind of find uh, there's just not enough like beds anywhere mm-hmm. you look at that there's just not enough services for it for the amount of people who are struggling and coming in and out yeah,
1: and some of the local programs have added beds mhm and expanded uh, their uh, availability. But there still tends to be a weight in some cases. The, the weight might be less than it was uh, a year or two ago, but there still tends to be some weight. And across New York State, I, you know, I, I tell people that are urgently seeking care that I can find a bed in New York State. I can utilize the Oasis website for that and look mm-hmm. for bed availability. And, but then there's barriers with getting to Syracuse, Albany, New York City, Adirondacks, um, with transportation or insurance coverage. So even if there's bed availability, there, there can become other barriers. But even even without those barriers, if, I, if somebody really wanted to get there and they had the means to get there, we, I can find a bed in New York State in a day. The other concern is is if they want their family involved in their care th- while they're in this program, now their family's stuck. And they can't be a part of the program because their their loved one's so far away. So people opt to stay local so they can have their, their loved ones involved in the process, which is a big key element of that it. That is huge.
0: Yeah. That, I mean, that was a big thing for me, even though my 28-day program was out in by New York City mm-hmm. at that Blaisdell ATC. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that is a huge thing. I'm also thankful for places like Save the Michaels that drive across the mm-hmm. state and all of that, but I think there needs to be more transportation things, and and it's ridiculous how many people have trouble with insurance, yeah, and how many people have insurance companies telling them, all right, you've stayed there long enough, you don't need any more treatment, and that always was something that drove me nuts. There is a lot of barriers, but as you pointed out, we've come a long way. Yeah, just in the last few years. Yeah. Uh We've had a lot less insurance denials, Mm -hmm.
1: and with the way the laws have changed, patients don't need insurance approval before... They, go they in. come to an inpatient facility anymore. The inpatient facility now has the opportunity to assess that individual and determine if they're appropriate for the program and and uh, and then follow up with the insurance company. And then they don't have to follow up for two weeks. Uh, so you have a two week period company. before you have right, to like to even... assess and okay. triage and determine what their needs are. And is if that means stay, then stay, if or that means refer to another program that might be more suitable. Mm-hmm. So that that gives us some leeway. And the the other thing nice thing about stabilization is that w- we're a walk-in facility, and most 28-day inpatient facilities are referral-based. Mm-hmm. Uh, you have to referral from a counselor or a physician, and there's a lot of paperwork involved with that. With our process, yes, we do receive referrals from other organizations, but patients walk right up to our door, and our nurse counselor can assess uh, their needs and determine, again, if we are appropriate and even if we don't know right then and there, but they appear appropriate right now, then we can bring them in and then determine if they need uh, withdrawal services. So if they need medication or not, mm-hmm. or if they just need some other supportive Uh, element other than medication, and it might be stabilizing some medical concerns, some chronic medical issues, or some short-term acute medical concerns, emotional or mental health concerns, and that that might be something we can do short-term, or it might be something that's more chronic and we can do longer-term. So what we've done is... We, we took our downstairs former detox program and our upstairs 28-day program, and we, we just made it stabilization. Within stabilization, we can do withdrawal services, but we, we also kept intact our medically supervised withdrawal service. Okay,
0: so you kind of just combined, made it one right. all, all program overall. Right. Okay.
1: So now, depending on... It's offered us an opportunity to really just bring people in front of the street and, and figure it out. Again, when we had the 28-day inpatient that was referral based in that referral determined that they're not going to need detox to get in the door there so you got people waiting to get into your inpatient facility and then the the withdrawal service or the detox service you have individuals that need to get out in off the street but they don't need detox but the cycle mm. of the use is so disruptive that going to an outpatient just really isn't feasible because mm-hmm. they're so lost in the cycle that they they're not going to remember an appointment or there's transportation barriers or other lifestyle issues right? So now it doesn't matter what they're using as long as we can determine that their substance use is disrupting their life enough to, that they need to get off the street or wherever they're at to break that cycle, we can do that. So it really doesn't matter what they're using, whether they're going to go through a withdrawal or not. We, we can bring more people in that way and start assisting people without saying go to outpatient first, be assessed there. Then they can determine if you can go to inpatient. We can just do it all right here
0: that's awesome just get in here we'll work work it all out figure it out why you're here yeah i mean because that's all it takes is one little delay Mm -hmm. one hour of holding somebody up and i mean they could be dead Mm -hmm. it's happening yeah all over the place and i think it's also awesome you can just bring people right in as well because that that weight having Somebody who is in addiction have time to wait and think about things. Mm-hmm. That uh, that voice always comes in, and it is usually like, "All right, you actually probably don't need to go into treatment." And I've seen yeah. that happen so often as well. Well, that's a nice thing too, because everybody's at different stages of change and different stages of
1: readiness. And so some some do leave. Because of what there might be external barriers that they need to address or internal, <laughs> internal barriers. So people do leave, and then sometimes you know, in a sh- very short term, realize that, you know, hey, I probably should have stayed. Yeah, I probably should have stayed, um, or I took care of whatever was going on outside. Again, they don't necessarily have to wait for another referral to come back. Uh, so we always like to keep that door open for individuals that just. You know, we don't want them at that time that they're ready to think, oh, I burned a bridge, and now they're resentful or scared or second-guessing, should I go back there? Or can I go back there, uh, yeah. Or can I go back yep. there? And even in situations where we've had administrative discharges where we've had to say goodbye to somebody because they you know, got in an argument or didn't get along with a peer or something like that.
0: Smoking cigarettes uh, in the bathroom. <laughs> well, I mean... I, I,
1: that's that's not an urgent thing that we discharge <laughs> no, for. We're pretty lenient around around that and working with people. But but there are there are situations where we, we even ask people to leave, whether they're asking to leave or we're asking to leave. Mm-hmm. I, I still try to have those situations go down smoothly to the point where it can still be amicable. There's still a handshake. There's still hey this this we, we don't want to disrupt your your recovery. We don't want to disrupt your work. It may not be that you can't work on it here, but we want to ensure. You're you're able to work on it and let's get you to where you can go. And, And a lot of times, as long as the patient allows us, we're getting them door to door to another facility, not to the street. So even in those administrative situations our goal and and everybody stops here mm-hmm. and works on finding the next available bed for this individual so they don't have to go to the street and they can continue their recovery and start fresh hit the reset button at the next facility and be like you know what yesterday was yesterday I didn't get along with that peer or whatever but now I know what set me off and I can continue working on this same goal at this next place and so, you can continue it on yeah. yeah so it, our first goal is safety in those situations, whether they're leaving because they said they want to leave or because we're asking them to leave. First goal is safety. We always try to do a door-to-door mm-hmm. to another treatment facility. We try to avoid a shelter. And the, and the third is making sure it's amicable and uh, knowing that even though they might not be able to be here right now, if you need us down the road.
0: You can always come back. Yeah,
1: and There are those rare situations where we have some people that really do not belong in a community setting because of w- mental health concerns or whatever. But I, I even tell them, you know, if you, if you're hitting a roadblock somewhere, you can always call and we have resources available to us here. Even if it's not living here, you know, we can get we're, we're, we're going to do something that suits you know, we're, we're going to. Yeah. So we, we always try to work with those scenarios.
0: Yeah, that's, that's awesome. And I also loved how I obviously I didn't come to Terrace House but I ended up at Horizon Village out in Sanborn. And then going into outpatient and all of that, I loved how all the counselors were always communicating from, you know, with one another. The counselor from Terrace House commuting with, communicating with one out in the village, the one out in the village communicating with your outpatient counselor and how they all kind of just had an idea of who you were. All that information is passed along with it, you know, how you've done throughout the program. And I always loved that interconnectedness of all the places that Horizon Health has provided.
1: Yeah, coordination of care is huge. It it allows us to have everyone to have information that benefits the patient, mm-hmm. and that can be hard when you're working between organizations because you don't necessarily have all their email addresses. You've got to hunt down their fax numbers. You got to go through their go look up their websites or call their reception desk, yeah. and, and and that that can become a barrier. Then you get a voicemail. Then you find out that they're on vacation, or so here when you're working within one organization having access to information is helpful cuz we have one EMR electronic medical record that we can obtain information from but even like we know their emails we know like the counselor's email or the other staff it doesn't have to be a counselor the provide the medical provider but even if that staff person is off there's still 10 other people we can you include can in the email them. to yep. you know like, to hunt people down and get information immediately to solve problems and come up with solutions. So working within one organization is is beneficial.
0: It absolutely is. So you can have. I know my buddy um, that actually originally started this with Andy, and he always talks about his reflection in the you know the door over there with everything he owned in two plastic bags. And hmm. I think that's what he did. He just walked right in and you know went through the whole works, and which he's still doing good, which I'm happy to to okay. hear about. I mean, it's tough. You got people that are living on the streets. Mm -hmm. And if they need somewhere to go, how many beds do you have in just the detox area? 28 beds. Okay.
1: We have 18 male beds, six female beds, and we have four overflow beds that can be all male or all female, depending
0: on the need. What you need. Okay. And then now this is like downstairs, correct? That's downstairs. And then you would send them upstairs after they're cleared, which is usually what, about seven days? That can ebb and flow. Okay. And And it's case by case. Okay. So it's based
1: on the individual patient's needs. And it can sometimes play with bed availability upstairs as well and how mm-hmm. how much availability there is in the upstairs portion with people moving on to the next their next program. We try not to utilize that as a barrier if somebody really needs to m- move on to the next step from downstairs and there's a bit of a hold up upstairs we we can move them along to another organization and sometimes even to right to the village in some cases but it's more of a case-by-case assessment of needs Mm -hmm. so downstairs we have a lighter program meaning we, we have less groups less activities because there, a lot of them are coming in right from the street. And even if they're not going through withdrawal, they might have other chronic health issues. Their sleep patterns are off. They're just new to the environment. So, it, you know, it's, there's, there's a lot for them that's just all of a sudden changed. Mm-hmm. So there's an acclimation process. And they're trying to figure out if this is the right place for them. We're trying to figure out if we're the right place for them. And can we meet their needs? So over, over time, they start gradually trickling into groups and deciding if, you know, group is something they want to participate in. And even just following up with general healthcare care, though, is, is often avoided when people are using because they're, they're scared of yeah. what their physician might find or tell them, you know, or will they tell somebody else? Uh, will they tell my family that, you know, that, that I'm using or what I'm using? So they you know, often avoid just healthcare in general.
0: Yeah, I still avoid healthcare. I mm-hmm. don't know why. I don't have still don't have a primary physician. <laughs> I don't know what it is about it. I never have never been into the doctor thing. It's weird. I don't know why because I'm going to end up getting sick where I need an antibiotic one day and not have a primary f- care physician, but I'm learning some things, Jeremy. <laughs> we have urgent cares now. That's that, that's worked. So. <laughs> that is true. Yeah. Although those are probably you can't imagine what those are like. But so tell me what like what was your reasoning for getting in this field? You know how this became something you wanted to do. You know, what your background kind of is in that area? That's that's an interesting journey for me. <laughs>
1: I I started off as an engineering major. Really? Yeah, and uh, I had an opportunity to volunteer with at-risk youth. Okay. And wasn't really fitting in with the engineering population uh, at the school I was at. And through this volunteer activity was finding more more meaning and purpose and switched to a psychology major. I, d- I grew up doing a lot of volunteering and service work. My family did a lot of service work through church and, and uh, just other community organizations. So giving back and just helping the community has always been part of my
0: lifestyle. Yeah. yeah.
1: I felt like if I was going to have a career doing something, it was, it had to have some sort of meaning to me at the end of the day that I felt like I did something for, for the community.
0: Yeah. I love it because that's how I have always, I have always been like that. And really one of my main reasons for using that I kind of came to discover was going to work in a kitchen or at the end it was cutting area rugs for a company and just feeling that emptiness. Like, what am I doing? I'm wasting my life here. I'm not getting anything out of this other than a paycheck and to me that doesn't matter how much money that is that's all I'm getting out of it I just feel empty and like I'm wasting and obviously when I would use that work I would be like oh this ain't so bad <laughs> you know and it always took that away so that's awesome I totally identify with that because I definitely needed something where I was giving back in order to feel like I'm doing something meaningful and something with purpose yeah, there's a there's a reward to that mm-hmm. and
1: it and it doesn't always come in thank yous and or gifts or finances or you know mm-hmm. like an income or whatever but even here, just within forty eight hours of seeing the patients how they were coming in the door, we take a photo of everyone when they come in and when they see that photo just a couple of days later or we see the photo just a couple of days later and we see how much has changed just within a few days forty eight hours yeah it's just, it's, it's amazing to see some of that happen. And the staff or people that visit the different locations from here at 291 Elm Street at Terrace House and then visit downstairs and then visit the same people upstairs and then go out and visit the village and see the same people or even just different people out at the village. And they see how much has changed just within that few weeks or a month or two not only physically but emotionally how they carry themselves how they interact with the people around them their outlook the language they use uh, about themselves about the world around them it's 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 completely night and day
0: yeah i mean i've witnessed it going through the program with lots of people and it's amazing some of the people i've told people all the time that even my little bit time spent in jail with some people I was in a, like a drug kind of dorm area at the Erie county holding center that they did and just deal, seeing there's so many amazing awesome beautiful people when they're not using drugs mm-hmm. I mean there's something obviously for me I've never stole anything in my life till I was starting to get dope sick and there's just so many amazing people creative people awesome people kind people you know loving people that are just all over the place and to see that transition i love the whole picture idea because it's almost something tangible well some of them even ask for their picture they're like can i have that as a reminder i mean it's huge yeah i mean even looking at some of my pictures with my girlfriend and my family and stuff from in the middle of my use it was like holy crap you know i'm skin and bones i not that i'm not skinny now but i was even skinnier if you can imagine that it is it's something like oh it makes you proud. It makes you happy. You feel you feel motivated when you see that. Yeah. And Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, the picture thing is huge. The staff even get motivated. Yeah. When the staff uh, that primarily
1: work downstairs will go visit upstairs and they'll see somebody that they saw downstairs. They see how they're doing upstairs. They get motivated mm-hmm. and excited from that. Or when they go out and visit the campus, they don't just say, oh, you know, hey, I noticed some changes. They, they have their... They're excited. Yeah, they have big smiles on their face. Like you wouldn't believe how so and so is doing right now. Uh, You know, so you know they really gave us a run for our money here. But they're doing so great (laughs) now. You know, (laughs) but so it really excites everybody to
0: see that. Yeah, that's uh, that's super motivating. I can't fathom the the people that I really would hope to you know find ways to reach and encourage them through stuff like this that are just stuck and scared Mm -hmm. to do I take this step to go Mm -hmm. in? Because it's hard. It's super hard. It's super challenging to come out on top when, especially when you've been in an opiate addiction for many years, it is extremely hard to come out on top. And sometimes it can be defeating because there's, I mean, there's a lot of times where you relapse, you get some clean time and you relapse. And one thing I try to push as far as my message goes to people is taking those those relapses as just learning experiences Mm -hmm. and not getting too down on yourself about it cuz i've seen that all the time. Yeah. That somebody slips up one night and then feels guilty, feels ashamed and then just says, F it," and right. goes on another run again and that's one message i really try to push out there cuz i'm sure you've seen people a couple times. You know, they've left, they've gone to the village and then, you know, maybe eight months later, a year later, they're come back and yeah. it's just it's awesome. I've seen when i was at the village, there was people i was with that you know, knew some of the counselors when they just got there. And I just loved seeing the counselors accepting of that and be like, oh, well, you know, what, what did you do right this time? And mm-hmm. what did you do wrong? And let's, you know, let's change it. Yeah. I mean, that's huge because so many people have this stigma of, oh, you're just going to relapse anyway. You're just going to relapse anyway. And I think that's really, it brings people down and it really doesn't inc- do any kind of encouragement Yeah, for people at all. But
1: we We know when they show back up here, if they show back up here that they're already going to be harder on themselves than anybody here's going mm-hmm. to be hard on them. So the the staff usually will, while they're waiting, you know, in the waiting room to come, the staff will go out and, and greet them and say, Hey, we're just glad you're safe. We're glad you're here. You know, and, and just provide words of encouragement and we'll, we'll look in, you know, when you're feeling better, we'll look and see what your plans are this time and what adjustments we need to make and, because we already we already know that they're going to be harder on themselves than mm-hmm. probably anybody else. Well, we always so, are as individuals, aren't we? We always are harder on ourselves. And we know—and we know that the community gives them negative messages. Mm-hmm. Family and friends might be, even if they're not giving a negative message. There's, you know, family's not jumping up and down for joy. No. So, <laughs> so <laughs> we try to do our best to help them focus on the positives,
0: which is huge. Yeah, I, everybody everybody needs it, especially in this this realm of yeah. self-help but yeah that's definitely definitely a big thing I just gave a was a speaker at this little group at Save the Michaels for about 40 people about what is recovery you know basically to me and there's so many different you know points of view out there there's you know you have a lot of the 12-step programs want to you say abstinence and there's the harm reduction piece and and there's a medical assisted treatment, and you know there's so many different pathways of recovery. And I've just always said to people, whatever is helping you find the things in your life that you need to change to keep moving forward as an individual, yeah. And that that's your recovery. It is what you want it to be. And if a relapse is a part of that, then a relapse is part of that. You know, use that as a learning experience. Uh, there was this argument on social media, which I stay away from constantly. And I just seen somebody posted relapse is not part of recovery. And I was just laughing. I was like, whoever takes that literally, there's nobody running around their first time being clean saying, Oh, wait, I'm not really in recovery because I haven't relapsed yet. Like, okay. and it just, it always drove me nuts. Like, obviously, you know why people are saying relapse is a part of recovery. Yeah. People, yeah. people are ridiculous there.
1: You know, word, words are powerful. And what I like to remind people of is that they're just still words. Mm-hmm. And we can get caught up in, in words and taking them too literally and misperceiving people's meanings. So I, I like to remind people of just how they identify success. Like, what, what is your idea of success? And how do we got to get you to that? Mm-hmm. I, I try to avoid Ever telling anybody what they need to do. I offer suggestions that might be evidence based or popular in, in regards to recovery ideas and mm-hmm. methods. But ultimately, you know, it's, it's up to the individual to find what they're looking for.
0: Well, we all know when we're told to do something or told what we need, we end up yeah. not wanting it, even if we believed we needed it to begin with. Yeah. <laughs> it's a, that's a very common thing to every individual.
1: Yeah. But there's a lot of recovery cliches that people like. Yeah, definitely They w- like cling on to, mm-hmm. and, and they make arguments out of it. And it's just, what does it mean to you? You know, they just just focus on what it means to you, and then use it the way you need to use it, uh, and not necessarily get too worked up about what somebody else is saying mm-hmm. in that message just like you're doing sometimes you just need to avoid certain messages avoid the and conversation and just all avoid, yeah because if, if it's going to be too negative and it's not going to help
0: anyways no especially on social media platforms <laughs> yeah that's never that's never a fun path to go down to and some people just like to poke the bear and just yeah just cause that's usually what i would what i would do <laughs> when i'd get in an argument when i'd see something stupid just get somebody all wound up that always amazed me how frustrated people would get on social media. You're like, you're on a computer, dude.
1: But there's a lot of what we talk about here is, you know, when it comes to like emotions and anger and sadness and anxiety and, and something that, you know, uh, a staff person said or a peer said or something you're watching on TV. And we, we kind of look at, you know, like what was said and what, what was it about that was said that was so upsetting? And if possible, let's bring that other person into the mm-hmm. room and, and find out what what did they really mean about it? Because a lot of times we jump to conclusions about what was really yeah. said and what was the meaning behind it. And does it really need to affect us just because somebody said something and they might believe a certain thing? Does it really need to ruin our day?
0: Yeah, I mean, more often than not, I feel like that's the case. Most people are take things or perceive things the way, completely different way than that other person meant. And you find too, obviously, especially I'm sure in the beginning of things when people are just getting clean only two weeks you know, of not using opiates, you probably find sometimes people are a little extra sensitive in a yeah. lot of areas, and you have to obviously you know, be aware of that. Yeah, there's a lot going on,
1: and we try to normalize that for them. You know, Again, just being in a new environment, Yeah, that is anxiety-provoking for some people. Being in a new environment with a bunch of strangers and staff that you don't know constantly hovering around you, mm. Now you're also going through withdrawal and you, and you don't have that substance yeah. that, you know, you're, you know, but even if you remove just the, the substance piece from it, it's a big change to come into this environment with unknown walls and unknown expectations and also thinking, okay, now I'm here. I came here because I want to do something different and change but they want me to do something to change myself and that means I've got to look inward at things that I might have said or done and need to do differently that's that's overwhelming for anyone as well yeah. again regardless of
0: substance yeah. use absolutely that yes. you know just doing soul searching is overwhelming it's super in- introspection is extremely difficult and you I mean that's why I've always said that's why people have other you know in quotes addictions like Netflix watching that constantly and some people use exercising. I, you know, I have constantly share that with people. Becoming an introspective human being and working on the things that you are not good at and finding the mistakes you've made and learning how to forgive yourself for them and learning how to forgive others for their mistakes towards you is not an easy task. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I think Carl Jung, the quote I always use is, people will do the most absurd things to avoid, to avoid facing their own demons. Yeah. And we will, because it's not... It's not easy to do. Yeah. Not it, at it's all. It's
1: scary. It's uncomfortable. hmm You know, so the, we, we understand that when they're coming in the door and they're maybe argumentative or sad, crying, their, their emotions are all over the place. It, yeah, a lot of that has to do with not having the substance or being under the influence or go withdrawing, post-acute withdrawal, mm-hmm. uh, even after they're through the uh, immediate withdrawal concerns. But just... Just life, you know, just this whole, like, in general, in general be, being in this new environment and uh, making change is uncomfortable and, yeah, and, and scary.
0: Yeah, and I always remind people, change in anything is uncomfortable and scary. We don't like it at all. Yeah. And I had this one author on here, um, Nick Maytosh his name is, and he wrote a book called Moving Past Mediocre, but I love how he said it. He doesn't call them comfort zones, he calls them familiar zones which I loved because we do, we get sometimes we're so used to something and that's painful and not even good, but we're so familiar with it. We don't want to leave it. Right. And people struggle with change all over the place, whether it's weight loss, whether it's diet, whether it's getting up earlier to exercise, whatever it is, we struggle with it and we fail at it repeatedly. And for some reason, when we add a drug in there, which I guess because when you're using heroin, you start stealing and doing these crazy things that you don't usually do, but which still, that the fact that we treat it so differently, there, it's hard. it's yeah. very difficult to do it. Yeah. All of us as human beings in general, we like habit and we like patterns. yeah, I when I speak to patients, family, the
1: community, I, I speak at schools, public schools, grad schools. I speak at Canisius in a couple of weeks at a, at a counseling class.:
0: We're doing a plug, what time? <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, it's just a small classroom, but uh, so but I, I always try to just remove drugs from the the conversation because there's so much stigma around it Mm -hmm. there's so much energy around it there's emotion around it so I just try to normalize the conversation about everyone's human let's just look at change who's done a who's ever had a new year's resolution who's ever tried to change anything start running uh, exercise more stop swearing and put money in a swear jar or you know lose weight change their diet Whatever it is, you know, whatever pattern it is, uh, changing your sleep times mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever the change is. You know, I just ask people like, you know, wh- who's done that before? Who's had a New Year's resolution? What kinds of things have you tried to change? And e- I even leave nicotine out of it, you know, even leave that out of it. And everyone, everyone's like, oh, yeah, I've tried to do th- I tried to study more or focus on this more, or do that more. And we just start having a general conversation about change and it's well how many of you were successful and the hands start going down Mm -hmm. and how long how long did you work on that idea that you were going to change and some people say well the ball didn't even drop you know on new year's you know (laughs) and i failed and i already (laughs) was back to the old (laughs) habit and other people like oh well, i went you know like a few weeks or a couple of months and we just kind of normalize that whole conversation of okay well why well, you know, and then we all go back to the willpower. That, well, you didn't have the willpower. And it's like, well, willpower is it's it's this intangible, fickle thing. You know, motivation is fickle. It's not concrete motivation and willpower. So we talk about the elements of why one person gets beyond the 30-day marker and continues on with that process of change and why others don't get beyond that and the the average individual doesn't get beyond 30 days um, before they decide just to go back to what was comfortable so we just have a general conversation about life now let's talk about you've been using this substance you're physically dependent on it now and if you don't have it you're violently ill Mm -hmm. Now add that into the equation. (laughs) And during all that time that you were using, you destroyed relationships, lost a job, you know, lost finances, and all these other things. And now, like, there's all of that added to the equation on top of maybe legal troubles Mm -hmm. and all this new stuff is coming to the equation. So you've already blown everyone's mind away with like, okay, I couldn't stop swearing after 30 days. (laughs) And now you throw in substances and and it helps them have a little bit better understanding of the the process and why it's so challenging and why it is enticing to go back to it. I even use little examples of, let's just say now you you have a job, you got to pay your bills. You got to get the kids on the bus. You, you've got all these responsibilities, but you you haven't slept for days because your kid's been sick. And you know that if you just use a little cocaine or whatever, you're back up in the morning, the kids are on the bus, you're at work, you've done everything you need to do. Otherwise, you're concerned that you're already out of time off at work mm-hmm. and you can't miss another day and you're already paycheck to paycheck. That's, that's a lot of people. Again, you remove the substances from it. People are already stressed with those things. Yeah. And if one little substance can maybe change the equation and seem like a plus and a positive to help them get through the day and keep the food on the table, then it becomes all, all of a sudden like, yeah, why wouldn't I do that? Yeah. Yeah. You know?
0: For some people, yeah. Well, I mean, every when you think about it, obviously, when anybody first started using substances, it obviously had a positive effect. What way? Whether it's your your thinking, whether it was like you said, oh, I can stay up and get this done, and I don't have to miss mm-hmm. work and then you just keep using it from then on from there out and it just becomes such a habit forming thing yeah and without even getting into the neuroscience of it that alone is just like why wouldn't i keep using this this was awesome i mean when i first started using opiates like i said it made me feel better about myself my job that i wasn't wasting away with this meaningless job and i was getting something out of it and like, all of a sudden, cutting area rugs and cooking food for fat Americans was uh, <laughs> was fun and enjoyable. Mm-hmm. And that's why I use it. It gave me more confidence in myself. And when you just think about that in general, I mean, why wouldn't people just continue to use? And then next thing you know, the whole physiological aspects of it, and you end up getting, like you said, violently ill if you stop using it. And now I don't have any money. I've lost my job. I've gotten, I've sold my car for it. I've sold all my instruments. I've broken into my parents' house and took my dead brother and sister's jewelry and pawned that. So they don't even want me around right now. My girlfriend kicked me out. What the heck? And then the next thing you know, you got nowhere to go. Yeah. And it really, for me, it happened in what, six months when it really got bad. When I went from pills to actual heroin. I mean, it was just that quick and all of a sudden you look back and you're like, how did this even happen and how did this happen at all? And then being able to go into a place where I was just forced, completely forced in jail to get clean. There wasn't many outlets for um, buying drugs at the Erie County Holding Center, at least where I was. I've heard stories of some, but really was no access to that. And when I was forced to do that, I really started taking that inward journey and that, that battle really begins and it's not easy. And yeah. it's that's kind of how we started the podcast, talking about that.
1: Sometimes when we're stuck in a rut, we feel trapped and we don't necessarily see that there's more options. So
0: Yeah, I think that a lot of people do feel completely stuck. And some people probably feel like they can't even go somewhere and even manage to ever get clean. Mm-hmm. And I think it's awesome just stuff, what you guys do here. And now I know behind closed doors... At, you know, the meetings, there's always, well, this company's doing better than us. We got to do this. I know there's obviously some competition there, which probably is a good thing. Keeps people innovative and changing. But for the most part, I find I've worked with Spectrum Health. I'm working with Horizons. I'm working with Save the Michaels. And for the most part, I feel everybody just kind of really works together and really helps the community and is really looking to change them as one, you know, one unit. Yeah, we, we have to do that. Mm-hmm. Um one organization isn't going to be able to do it
1: all. We're not going to be able to offer all things to all people and everyone's got to be willing to work together and you know each organization for the most part is going to offer similar services but then there's going to they're going to offer specialized services that the other one might not offer. And we and we need to utilize each other and work together. Absolutely.
0: That's awesome. Well, Jeremy, thank you for uh taking the time out of your busy day. Appreciate you coming on, and uh, I'm sure we'll plan another one down the road here. That'd be great. Thank you, Sean. Awesome. Not a pro. All right, guys. Thank you for listening. You guys are the best. I love you. Stay tuned. We have some awesome episodes lined up and coming up. The CEO of Horizon Health, the CEO of Evergreen Health. We just are getting some awesome guests coming up the rest of this fall and into the winter and new year. But remember, go to Room9Podcast.com and give us a visit. Show us some love, and we appreciate all the support you give us. All the encouragement, all the financial support, all the social media support is just surreal. Okay, have a great week, and we'll talk to you next week, Monday. Peace.